This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 252. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Riley Bowman, and I have two co-hosts, my two of my favorite people in the whole world. <laughs> Jacob Paulson and Matthew Marister. M-M, M-N-D-M. Yum. Mm. I don't believe that. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll own it. I totally believe I'm one of Riley's favorite people. Uh, today's episode is all about how to pick your music track for your podcast. <laughs> As, you know, I was thinking about that too as we listened to the music queue up today. And uh, I was thinking back in my mind that this is Jacob's favorite song like ever. And that's how it became the uh, theme song for the podcast. That's, that's not what happened. We, <laughs> Riley was assigned with like picking out some options, and we were sitting in my old office, and you were just like hitting play on. I'm like, no, 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 yeah, yeah, I like that one. And you're like, yeah, me too. I was like, all right, done. Well, <laughs> it took all of about like three seconds to decide. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was pretty funny. Uh, yeah, we. I don't even remember what it came from. I honestly couldn't tell you if you had me. If you asked me to go find, you know, I know it's a either either it was free for license or a free license to use or or we paid for. It. I honestly don't remember. I know whatever it was we did legally. I just don't remember where the song came from. <laughs> Some website with free audio tracks. I'm sure. <laughs> Probably. It's all good. No, that's really not what today's episode is about, Riley. Today is the Ultimate Concealed Carry Beginner's Guide Part Two. It's it's the uh, second part in a series that was never quite a series until today because we, the funny thing is we recorded Ultimate Concealed Carry Beginner's Guide Part One in episode 138 of the podcast. So if you missed it and you want to go back and listen to episode 138, that's where you'll find part one. We recorded that thinking, hey, yeah, we're going to do kind of a, a, a series of episodes that is a little bit more basic, uh, more intended for those that are like really just just getting their feet wet and concealed carry. Um, you know, I would say that a lot of these things we've talked about at some point in the podcast, you know, in the, in the 252 episodes that we've done, the problem is, is like, it's not, you know, it, you have to kind of thin through the weeds to, to find some of, uh, that, uh, that content, some of that kind of beginners level content. Most of this, and most of these topics are not topics that by themselves would justify an entire episode. It'd be really boring to listen to us talk to, you know, safeties for forty minutes. Uh, so these are these are topics that you know we think collectively you know work for us to talk about over the course of an episode. But independently on their own, they're just there's not that much to say about them that, to take up an entire episode. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But either way, we put the, we've we've packaged this together in a. a you know, one episode. So today we've got nine things we're going to talk about, about concealed carry. And you know what? Even if you th think you are not a beginner, I still think there's going to be something of value for everyone in this episode today. So with that, uh, today's episode is brought to you by Guardian Nation. Surprise, surprise. Uh, we're definitely going to hit on this today because Guardian Nation members, one of the big benefits that you get as a member of Guardian Nation is you get to join in live and ask questions and get answers directly from industry professionals, a monthly live broadcast with some big name in the industry. Today, or tonight really, at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, we have hosted on this month's GN Live, John Lovell of Warrior Poet Society. John is incredibly uh, intelligent and well-articulated. 
but also knows how to kill bad guys really, really well. So uh, I, I like that aspect of, of John. He is truly a warrior poet, and we're excited to have him tonight on Guardian Nation Live. To join that, you need to be a member of Guardian Nation. That's that's unfortunate. I wish we could open up to everybody, but that's the deal. So if you're not a member and you want to find out more, go to GuardianNation.com and get signed up. Um, you'll find the, the link. A lot of times, I think we... Do we email the link, Jacob, as well, to members? We do. Yeah. Uh, usually we do, yeah. But it, Or we'll, we'll at least send you the link to the page with the link. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah, because yeah, you got to... Yeah, you got to get logged in, and, and then uh, you'll see the link within the members dashboard area uh, where you can uh, join the live Q and A uh, broadcast. So uh, tonight should be a good one with John Level. Uh, today's episode is also brought pos- made possible and brought to you by SSP Eyewear. SSP Eyewear makes uh, great eye protective wear, uh, and we've uh, been kind of partnered with them in, in, to, to to an extent. I mean, we sell their products on our site. Uh, we, we like their products. The cool thing about SSP Eyewear is I think it's a perfect balance of quality and affordability. I mean, these are not the type of, it, these are not Oakley's or whatever that's going to set you back $200 for a pair of eyewear. Uh, they're a lot more reasonably priced, but they're still good quality. And they have a lot of options. Specifically, for those of you that might be a little bit, you know, getting up there in the years, your eyesight's changing, uh, you need reading glasses, that sort of thing. They have something perfect for you. They have top focal glasses, shooting glasses, which means you'll be able to get the right prescription. You should be able to see that front sight through that top focal part part of the lens. Anyone that know that that's tried to shoot with bifocals, you typically this is this is the the the, the typical look, right, Jacob? Like they're kind of you know tilting the head back as they're trying to get mm-hmm. that lower part Chill of their out. eyeglass up to where they can focus on the front sight. So that's what's great about top focals. It's not something you want to wear all the time, but for shooting, they're perfect. So normally, I remember when I first discovered top focal glasses, and it's not because I need them. It's just I, I remember discovering them. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That's pretty cool. And there was a one company out there. I, I think they're still out there, but they were like three or $400 for a pair of shooting glasses because they were highly specialized and they had this top focal part of the lens. SSP Eyewear has made that incredibly affordable. So if that's something that you need, I would encourage you to check them out. Or even just for standard, I just ordered a box of eyewear. I've got a bunch of of eyewear for my kids, my wife. Um, Very, very affordable. Very, very good stuff. So check it out. Concealedcarry.com forward slash SSP is the link to check it out. So, well, without further ado, let's jump into today's episode content. The ultimate concealed carry beginner's guide, part two. So, first, can I kick this off, Riley, by telling everybody the topics that were covered in part one? Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. That's a perfect place to start. So, episode one thirty-eight. Here are the things we talked about in the ultimate beginner's guide, part one. We talked about belts, gun belts. We talked about pants and waistline displacement, uh, IWB guns and bigger pants. We talked about undershirts and sweat guards. We talked about slide bite. We talked about cleaning materials. Uh, how, how often you clean. We talked about lubrication versus cleaning. We talked about fouling. And we talked a little bit about uh, you know, focusing on skills, not accessories. Yeah, there you go. Good stuff. Um, you know, and it's funny because a lot of the beginner stuff that we talk about tends to be a little bit more focused around the gear. Uh, be, 
you know, it's just kind of a little bit of irony because in that episode we talked about, hey, focus less on the gear and focus on skill building. And that is the truth. And I think Matthew and I just talked about that last week yeah. somewhat as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. 80-20 episode. Right, right. Um, I would say that's still true, but there's going to be a lot of things today that we talk about that is going to be a little bit gear focused because some of these things are, are things that aren't necessarily intuitive or that not all shooters, uh, especially newer concealed carriers, a lot of times they're, they're folks that are just coming into this because for whatever reason they've decided they want to carry a gun to, to protect themselves and their families. And uh, there's a lot of little things that, you know, if you didn't grow up with that or if it's not, not something that you uh, until very recently were um, – passionate about and studying and reading about constantly. There's a lot of things that just take some time to, to pick up, to learn, to understand. Some of that is is terminology, vocabulary. Um, and so actually, I think that's probably where we're going to kick it off first today. Um, <clears throat> so and today, just give you a little, a little heads up. Okay. So, so you'll kind of have a feel for where we're going with this episode. And uh, so you might want to stick around. There's something here that you might want to listen to. <clears throat> today, we're going to be talking about uh, hang on. I had the list here. It is. Whoa. What in the world? Here we go. I dominance, not necessarily in this order. This is just how I have it listed here. Uh, DASA guns. All right. Trigger vocabulary and what to look for, or what makes a good trigger. Uh, night sights, safeties, holster retention types, carry ammo, handgun reliability, and what is actually considered reliable versus not. And what do you do with your EDC when it's not being carried or when you get home? All right. So there's some of the things we're going to talk about today. All right. Some good basic uh, concepts. So let's start, though, first with I, I want to talk about uh, trigger vocabulary. All right. So wh- where, where do we begin with that? Yep. So I'll kick it off. So you know, in a real simple way, and there's probably different words for these things, but I'll just tell you how I use it. When we talk about a trigger, when we're trying to describe the trigger... Uh, when you first put some pressure on a trigger and you start to press that trigger to the rear, there's a certain amount of travel uh, distance, uh, what we might call take up, where that or trigger slack. moves rel- slack, where that yeah, where that trigger kind of moves relatively smoothly, and then it hits what we often would refer to as the wall, that that breaking point where if I go any further now a shot is going to cook off. But before that, until I hit the wall, until I hit that breaking point, that initial travel, you know, I'm taking up the slack in the trigger, in the trigger. it's traveling there, I'm taking up the trigger. That, that's some of the vocabulary that I've heard used or that I would use to describe that kind of initial travel of the trigger from its resting point to the wall. Yep. Yeah, and actually, so before... You're absolutely correct in that. For most handguns, that is the case, right? Um, let me throw in another kind of vocabulary or different sort of type of trigger sort of thing. And that would be that there's a lot of times what we have a stage one versus a stage two trigger. Now, most handguns, especially striker-fired guns, are what we would consider a two-stage trigger. If we want to think of it, you know, simplify it in that way. Um, there's, a, there's a lot going on inside a trigger mechanism, right? <clears throat> so... Saying something is one stage or two stage, sometimes even oversimplification. But this is what I mean by one versus two. Uh, and we don't usually worry about it so much in a handgun, but especially in precision rifles or AR-15s even, sometimes you hear people talk about, well, I prefer a one stage versus a two stage. A single stage trigger is one that you don't have that slack. You basically are already at the wall. The trigger is just designed that as soon as you apply the appropriate pressure, let's say it's a 
two and a half pound trigger or three pound trigger, whatever it is, as soon as you apply three pounds, bang, it clicks and it goes bang, right? Um, a two stage is one where you have that initial take up, that slack, and then you hit the wall and that's where the second stage begins. So one stage is taking up the slack and the second stage is click, bang, right? Mm -hmm. Now, like I said, in most handguns, especially striker fired ones, which which are so popular today, and I've got my cert just like you have your cert, Jacob. How fancy are we? Um, you know, the most of these are what I would consider a two stage, where you have that initial slack or take up, like Jacob just described, and then you hit that wall or breaking point, and then you get the click and the bang, right? Mm-hmm. So, I just wanted to clarify that in case because uh, that's another sure. kind of beginner thing that a lot of people. Well, what's a single stage versus a two stage, and you know that sort of thing as well. Well, Matthew, help people understand this. We talked about pounds, you know, it's a two pound trigger, six pound trigger. Talk through that. And then, uh, you know, what about reset? Yeah. So, um, a lot gets made about like how much pounds of force it takes to squeeze a trigger. Right. And that's why people will put, um, you know, aftermarket triggers in their guns for competition purposes and they'll lighten it up because the, the, the idea is if I, need less force to pull the trigger or to squeeze the trigger, then the um, likelihood of me pulling that shot off uh, off target is less, right? Because I'm not applying so much force. Um, but there's inherently different triggers. It's, it, you can't just remove the the weight on all triggers. So you have your double action triggers that are inherently going to provide, that require more, more uh, pounds per uh, pressure to pull the trigger, right? Because they're caught the part of that trigger pull is cocking the hammer back. So there's a mechanical force that you have to apply. Um, and so, you know, some people and with those double action triggers, you might not feel that initial take up, you know, uh, the sloppiness of the take up, it's still moving back to a certain wall, but you, it, that pressure is, is building throughout the whole trigger rather than it being, you know, zero pressure and then kind of building up. Um, and some people like that and you get your double action, single action, which we'll talk about in a bit, but, um, and so, yeah, so once the trigger breaks, right, there's the over travel. So, and I happen to have my cert pistol. So just so you know, um, so after the trigger breaks, right, there's that, 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 that movement to the rear of the, uh, to the rear of the gun of the trigger, before uh, or right, right after it breaks, right before it completely reaches its the, the back point. Now you can adjust certain triggers, um, and people don't really like having a lot of over travel because they're thinking, you know, once I break that shot, I want to start releasing the trigger to reset so I can break another shot. I don't want to have to continue to move the the trigger back. And I've actually seen triggers that aren't adjustable. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but I've seen people put like little things behind, uh, uh, mount them to the frame. So that actually prohibits the, the trigger from moving past that breaking point. So once it breaks, it hits like this little rubber stop. I'm not saying to do that. I'm just saying that's how, you know, some people get so into this, this, um, over travel. Um, and so basically once that over travel, you hit the back, back part of the frame, right? The trigger can't go back any further. You start to release the trigger back out and, and you're releasing it to your, uh, to your reset point where that trigger resets. And at that point you could reapply rearward pressure and break the shot. Mm-hmm. So Riley, why, when, when you're looking for a trigger, like I'll give you the best example of where this, 
this is where my trigger education began was one day when you and I walk around shot show and at shot show, there's endless guns displayed for anyone could just pick up and play with, but there's no live ammo, obviously. And I would notice that you would pick up a gun and you would you know, press that trigger really slowly. You'd, you'd feel the click and then you'd cycle the slide while the trigger was trapped to the rear. You'd let it forward until you felt the reset. And then you do it again. You do that repeatedly. And I'm like, Okay, what's he doing? And so I started doing that with you. This is, I don't know, whatever my first year of SHOT Show was. And I started doing that, and I started to notice this, you know, significant differences, uh, particularly in the reset. So talk a little bit about, you know, what are, what are you looking for, and, and what's what's the point here? Uh, well, it depends on, depends on what it is I'm actually looking for, right? Like, if it's a... If it's a precision rifle, that's one thing, right? One purpose. If it's a competition handgun, that's another thing. If it's a defensive handgun, that's a whole other thing. Now, I, I do think there's definitely some crossover. I mean, for one, for, for instance, um, one thing for sure, the shorter the reset is on a trigger, the better. Like, there's there's almost never any downside to have having a short reset. Uh, because what that especially if you're shooting fast. In a defensive context, you might be shooting fast. Uh, you might not necessarily be, but chances are you're probably shooting somewhat quickly. And so in other words, you're moving that finger fairly quickly and you want to reset the gun as fast as you can as well. Um, the shorter that reset distance is, the, the better because you're going to be reset faster and you're less likely to have uh, a short stroke of the trigger, uh, which sometimes is also... Kind of, it's kind of similar to like trigger freeze. If anyone's familiar with the term trigger freeze, it's kind of like a, a what do they call it? A, a, a golfer that's putting and they get a, a the yips. Uh, yeah, yips. Thank you. I, I used to golf a lot, and yeah, like you know, they just kind of it, a trigger freeze is kind of like that. You know, like you're trying to shoot and like you kind of like have this moment where you freeze. Well, sometimes that f- freezing can also be caused because you think you've reset the trigger and you actually haven't because you haven't let that finger out far enough. And so that's a problem, right? I've done that. I've done that many times. In fact, I did that recently when I was filming a uh, video for our members area in, in Guardian Nation uh, because I've been shooting the, th- the P365 a bunch this summer as I've been testing and evaluating the 365. It has a fantastic trigger for a small defensive handgun. And then I moved over to a Glock, and I'm sorry, the trigger on a Glock sucks compared to those P365 triggers. The reset's longer. It's just it's just not as good as a, of a trigger. And uh, all of a sudden, like I was struggling, like getting that thing reset because I've I've um, spent so much time on the 365. I'm normally shooting a wide variety of guns, and I, I tend not to have as many issues that way. But I've been so focused on that one gun this summer. So um, I, that was just interesting, you know. So short reset. Here's another thing too. A lot of people like an audible or tactile reset where they can either feel that reset in the trigger or they can hear it. In the case of like a Glock, they're well known for being very tactile and very audible, very loud reset in a Glock. Um, I don't know how critical it is to hear that reset. I'm not sure if it's something I would be capable of hearing in a gunfight. So I'm less concerned you know, than some people are as far as having an audible reset. I definitely like being able to feel it, but even then I'm not sure how critical that is if I'm shooting rapidly. I'll tell you when I'm shooting quickly, I'm slapping at the trigger. I know like people tell you not to slap, but guess what? The reality is when you're shooting fast, you almost have to slap and it's almost better to slap because 
you're more likely to have a short stroke if you're trying to constantly reset just to that reset point because you're just going so fast, you're going to, one of those times you're going to miss and, and end up a little bit short. I think also, you know, this conversation about you know, triggers and shorter resets and things, there, there's definitely an alignment on this topic relative to skill. Uh, I think when you're a newer shooter, there's a tendency for your triggered your your trigger finger to come all the way off that trigger, almost out of the trigger guard every time you press the trigger. So, so to you, it doesn't really matter how how long that reset is, does it? But as your skills improve and you learn to only release the trigger out as far as is necessary to reset it, then all of a sudden, you know, the the length of reset starts to matter, right? Because that's less distance you have to travel in order to reset the trigger. Yeah. And I think also it, it matters um, as far as we were talking about training and skill level. Um, if you, you know, people that shoot multiple different weapons, right? So you have a single action uh, striker fire gun and maybe you have a double action, single action or double action only revolver or something. If you're training yourself on one trigger, um, you're really going to have difficulty trying to just feel, you know, get, get exactly to that reset point, like, like Riley was saying. So I think initially the, the goal is, is to just focus on controlling your trigger finger, not so much like I need to get it right to this point and not any further. If you can, if you can do that during slow fire and kind of build that in, you're going to start feeling it and you're going to start programming it. But, um, but I think, you know, initially, as far as a skill building, um, you know, just identify how to squeeze the trigger, you know, straight to the rear without slapping it too much. And, and that's more important than trying to focus on like, let me just let it out to that point, that, that exact uh, reset point. Cause if you're shooting different guns, it's, it's going to be really difficult. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm holding here just as an example, just to compare and show how different this is. I know for, for the audio only listeners that this doesn't make any difference, but I have here my competition rifle for three gun and this has a hyper fire trigger in it. Now this, this thing is, is clear. Okay. No magazine in it. Um, so different from our Glock triggers and, and P320s and so forth. I'm going to use my thumb to activate this so you can see on camera. This is a single stage trigger and it's super light. And you can see how short the travel is on that thing. It is it is like nothing, you know, just so very different. I think in a defensive gun, we do want a little bit more. Uh, here's actually what I think is important in a defensive gun. I think more than trigger weight, having length of travel, particularly for that first shot, is really key. Um, under stress, when things are going kind of haywire, you know, and you're trying to move quickly and shoot quickly and get that gun out quickly, um, travel for that first initial shot. And this is why DASA guns are starting to come back into popularity. And we're going to talk about DASA or double action, single action in a little bit more detail here in just a second. Um, I'm, I'm starting to see a few shooters out there that are starting to put out this idea that, and not just because they're appendix carriers, because a lot of people are like, well, DASA guns are great for appendix. That's true. Spencer Keepers was on the podcast talking about that. But that length of travel is also kind of key because what that means is it takes a little bit more time for you to get that trigger prepped and to actually get that shot off. And that can come into play a little bit. I mean, I, th I do think trigger discipline is always important, you know, and only putting your finger on the trigger when you're actually intending on taking a shot. But still having some travel, I think, you know, is a little bit better of an idea on a defensive gun than having this super short travel single stage trigger like what I've got on my on my AR over here for a three gun. And um, when Riley talks about prepping the trigger, you, you, you mean taking out the slack, you're bringing the yep. trigger to the point where it's about to break. 
So yep. let's let's transition. Let's talk. Well, one last thing. Sorry, Jacob. Oh, if you're going to transition, it, because if we're talking about trigger vocabulary and all that, there's one other thing that I, I do want to throw out there because it, it sometimes come up comes up and people might not know what we're talking about. And that is, so we've talked about what? We've talked about trigger slack or prep. We've talked about you know the wall or the breaking point. We've talked a little bit about over travel, reset, all this stuff, right? There's another term that comes up quite often, and I don't know if people that use the term fully understand what it means, um, and that is trigger stacking. You'll sometimes hear people talk about, well, the, there's a lot of stacking with this trigger. And Matthew kind of started touching on that, I think, a little bit. And as you were describing um, some, you know, how some triggers are, you know, a trigger, you know, a trigger is rated for a certain number of pounds as far as what it takes to activate that trigger, right? That's just the you know, the way we measure triggers, that is like the max poundage. So the first three quarters of that tri- travel might only be three pounds when it takes a full six pounds for that trigger to finally break. When we talk about stacking, that's that's a, that's sort of what we're talking about, but stacking for sure is when we're actually trying to get that gun to fire. So I don't even count, I don't count slack in a trigger or the take up as part of stacking. Stacking is when you, when you are expecting that shot to actually break, Okay, so you hit that wall and you're starting to press, and it it you know initially it's okay, but then it gets stiffer and stiffer and stiffer and stiffer, and then it finally goes. That's stacking because it just keeps. It's like it's like it's like somebody stacking more weights on your trigger finger. You know, more weight, more weight, more weight, and that that stacking I think is is an undesirable characteristic. It is for most people. Right. It's engaging. It starts engaging the sear, yep. and, and it's moving the sear, but the sear hasn't quite released the striker yet. So think of it from the point where it starts moving the sear, um, but it hasn't released the striker. So there's that, that little bit of pressure that's like, and some triggers it's kind of builds up and some it's smooth throughout that whole, that whole process. And, and you want it to be smooth if you can. And that's why people do trigger jobs. And that's why some triggers feel nice because it doesn't like build up and then all of a sudden release it's, it's fluid as it, as it goes through that, that stacking, uh, portion of the, travel yep yep some guns come with just nice triggers just stock out of the gate some are okay and some really suck yep Uh, and so that's that's why aftermarket's a thing you know so talking about just one specific gun just just use an example by the way to show how um relating to my stacking example okay when i am pressing a p365 trigger you take up all the slack which is very it's very very light slack and then you hit the wall there is a little bit of travel to that break, okay? Like it, it you kind of feel it sort of, and there's also what we call creep. Creep is is the term that's used to describe as you're pressing and like you think it should be breaking, but it's still sort of, it's sort of creeping along and then all of a sudden it breaks. So the P365 does have some creep to the trigger, but it doesn't stack on you while you're doing that. So it's, for me, that's much more manageable than stacking is. A great example of stacking is any double action revolver. As you're pressing those things, they generally stack very heavy very early on in the trigger press. And then you hit a point when all of a sudden that that weight just sort of like goes away. And that's right before that point where the hammer drops. So anyway, I, we could go into more detail on this, uh, but I just want to make sure we threw out a couple of those other little terms um, so yep. that we did it justice. And, and for the beginners now, okay, you should at least be f- somewhat familiar with, with all these different terms, including stacking, creep, uh, slack, and so forth and so forth. Um, so the, the obvious transition is single action, double action, right? Double action, single action, etc. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know what? I, I'm sorry. I meant to just acknowledge Sean's comment here. Trigger jobs often mask poor trigger control. That's 
probably true. So does like gripping the gun really tight also masks poor trigger control. And I don't know if that's necessarily a, a, a bad thing, um, but definitely always better trigger control is always a good thing, right? Uh, but I definitely compensate for trigger control at times because of having a strong grip. Um, anyway, on a carry gun, guys, just real quick, uh, trigger modifications, yes, no? I'm going to say, you know, I've done some articles about this and it, it varies. You know, some people are for it. Some people are against it. Here, here's my take on it. For a, a, a gun that you're going to carry, you first of all, you have to make sure that that trigger job that you're going to have done is is done by a professional or it, it is a reliable company that you're getting that drop and trigger from. The, the last thing you want to do is have some janky trigger that's either not going to work or <laughs> cause some sort of malfunction where it fires unintendedly because I've seen some of them that disable certain internal safeties. Um, as far as reducing the trigger weight, I don't think it's so much so important to reduce the trigger weight. It, it, the, 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 a nicer feeling trigger is going to, sh- to, to feel better regardless of the trigger weight. Um, and, and so if it helps you shoot better and more accurately, and you can articulate that if you end up using your, your firearm, great. Um, but just to reduce the trigger weight because you think that it's going to make you shoot quicker or shoot better, it is, I think it's a bad, bad road to go down. Yep. So, My, Mine's a really easy summary. I, I think you, you should just buy and carry a gun that has a good trigger. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't carry a gun. I don't see any need to. I don't see any need to modify, and I think there's plenty of people that would recommend that you don't. Mm-hmm. And sure, buy a gun with a good trigger. Sure, I mean, but Jacob, you also like Glocks. Do Glocks have a good trigger? I think good is relative. Uh, do they have the <laughs> best trigger? I would say no, but I think that they have a good trigger. I, you know, I, I've, I have no problem. And, and, and I will also add that whatever gun you have, if you train and practice enough, you're going to get pretty good at using that trigger. You're going to know yeah. where the reset is. You're going to move uh, relatively well. Um, but I mean, I'll, I'll never be able to shoot my, my Kel-Tec P11 quickly, right? Oh, those, talk <laughs> about bad trigger, wow. right? right. Well, a, that's so, a double action only too, right? So, so you, for reset, right. you got to go all the way out. It's, it's brutal, But right? those are just so, well, that's terrible triggers. Like, but you, I, I perfect think, example of stacking, by the way. Yeah, it's, oh, it's bad. But on a, on a Glock, a stock trigger for me is fine. Like, is it the best trigger out there? No. Could I improve it with an aftermarket trigger? Sure. Or by carrying a different gun? Probably, but I, I got no problem with the Glock trigger. Yeah. Okay. Single action, d- double action. All right. So real quick, definition of single action, definition of double action, and then you merge those together to create a double action, single action, or DASA. So let me define just in a nutshell. Single action is how, how I always describe it when I'm teaching basic classes. Think you... It's a lot easier to describe when you have a hammered fire, a hammer-fired gun, Right? So imagine a gun that has a hammer. When the hammer is already cocked, ready to go, and Matthew's holding one up, but you guys can't see it here. I, I'll share it. I'll, I'll put everybody up on the screen. Here we go. Hold up that gun there, Matthew. Right. Is it clear? It's clear. So you guys know, just so you guys know, it's clear. All right. All right, so here we go. Okay, so imagine a hammer-fired gun. you got a hammer there, and that hammer is ready to fall, right? So the only job the trigger has to do is to release that hammer. That's a single action. Yep. All right. So when the hammer is already cocked, ready to fall, the trigger just does one thing and it releases the hammer. That's where you get the single action term from. Double action. Well, what is that? The 
the hammer at the trigger as it relates to the hammer has to do two jobs. It has to cock that hammer and it has to release the hammer. Simple as that, right? Boom. Two two actions. Cocking the hammer and releasing the hammer. That's the way I've always described it. I think it's I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I think it's fairly simple. I've heard some guys like really get in the weeds and, and describe it in ways that just doesn't make sense to me. But it, it's either it's doing the trigger's doing one job as it relates to that hammer or two jobs as it relates to that hammer. And I know some people try to classify certain striker fired guns as either being a single or, or double action. And you know, the easier way is to say this is striker fired. <laughs> a Glock is, a P320, uh P365, uh uh MMP. Those are striker fired guns. Call it its own category because honestly, there's no relation between those and hammer-fired guns, uh, and as far as how they operate, and some have a fully cocked striker. I get that, and some have a partially cocked striker, and some guns have a not cocked striker at all, meaning the trigger is cocking and releasing the striker. It, you could get into the weeds on that, but I just like to call striker fired and then double action and single action guns are the hammered guns. So let's talk about what double action, single action is then. So double action, single action, and I could go run and well, grab Matthew's my... Matthew's got one. Oh, yeah, Matthew's is. My, my P229 is my favorite DASA gun. But the premise of the double action, single action is that I carry that gun or the gun is ready to deploy with the hammer forward, right? It's decocked, which means that the first trigger squeeze is going gonna, is gonna to be a double action trigger squeeze. The, hammer is, the, the trigger is going to have to do two jobs. It's going to have to pull back the hammer and release it forward. But... After the gun fires and the slide cycles, the slide will cycle the hammer to the rear for me so that my follow-up shots then are only single action shots and that the trigger only has to let the hammer down. It only has to let it forward. It doesn't also have to cock it back. So DASA meaning first shot is double action. Follow-up shots are single action. Unless, you know, once I've done however much shooting I want to do, I can always hit the decocker uh, and let the hammer forward. And then my next shot is going to have to be a double action shot. And I think, you know, you mentioned the decocker. There are some guns that have double action, single action that have a decocker. Some have a decocker and a decocker, or a decocker uh, safety, which is one thing. And some people, some guns have a decocker and a safety. And some like this don't have a decocker at all. So you have to manually decock the hammer. So um, just so if you're looking at your double action, single action, you're like, oh, I don't have a decocker. It might not have a decocker or it might be part of the safety built into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, where do 1911s fall, gentlemen? It is a it single is action single. only. Yeah, right. And so this is an important distinction uh, because I think this could be an easy thing to confuse because based on our description, you might say, well, when I fire my 1911, the slide does come back and does cycle the hammer. Uh, but you also got to understand that on your 1911, in the hammer in the forward position, I can't just press, I can't just double, double, uh, double action the trigger to get the hammer back and forward. The trigger does nothing when the hammer's forward. That, right. That's why I use the hammer. definition the way I do, because it's it's so clear in that in a single action gun, now obviously you have some guns that are also double action that are operating in single action, but in a single action gun, the trigger does only one thing, literally only one thing. It simply releases the hammer. And in the case of a single action only, that's the only thing that trigger can do. Um, in a double, then you also have DAO guns, a double action only gun. You already used an example of that. Your P, your Caltech P11 is a double action only. It has an internal hammer, 
And every time you're pressing that trigger, it's fully cocking and fully releasing that hammer every time you have to fire that gun. Even though the slide totally cycles and it could, in theory, operate in a way where it could leave that hammer pre-cocked and then you'd have a single action. It, it you know Some defensive guns and some companies that make defensive guns believe in the DAO-type trigger, and that's that's the way they manufacture that gun. It's not... I, 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 I talked a minute ago about you know, having a longer trigger stroke and how that's not a bad thing for defensive use. I do think that DAO guns, mm, I, I'm not keen on. Like I, <laughs> Maybe in the case of a small gun. So like a LCP or something I think is a great example. A lot of times it's a gun that someone's carrying in a pocket, hopefully in a pocket holster. But you're carrying these types of guns maybe in a pocket or in a purse. Not my preference. I know Jackie would agree with us on this too. Um, but you know, it, it, you're carrying those in different contexts than you typically do your primary fighting weapon. And I think a DAO gun probably makes sense in those types of contexts uh, where you're just, the gun is inherently a little bit more safe to carry in some of those less than ideal ways or places because it has such a long, heavy trigger uh, and you're just less likely to have accidental or negligent discharges uh, with the way you're carrying those guns. What do you got there, Jacob? Uh, this is my cycling. XD. Oh, you got an XD there. Well, it's an XDM, I guess, technically. Yeah. But uh, I was just, I don't i don't shoot this gun a lot. It sits in a little safe here mounted to my desk. So since we were talking, I got it out, I cleared it, and I've been playing with the trigger. And uh, it's, it's that's a, I mean, this is a striker fire gun, right? It's not a big deal, but... Mm-hmm. Anyway, good times. I, I, I think this is important uh, as, as far as, you know, I think you, you bring up a good point, Riley, and this is something maybe we could hash out in a future episode, but, you know, under what circumstances are these different types of guns uh, best suited? Uh, I think you know, to some degree, there's some personal preference there. I think DASA guns are becoming very popular because of this idea of like that, that first trigger squeeze is going to be double action. So arguably maybe that makes it a little bit safer, but follow, follow-up shots are going to be so fast, so easy. Uh, to make with that that short reset, it's it's going to be just a really light trigger. So that's yeah. that's probably the, the the drama there or the 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 talk of the town on the DASA comeback. Uh, but who's who's to say? You know, some personal preference there, but also some some debatable you know things about mm-hmm. appropriate situations for some of these and others. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there's a lot of talk right now. You know, from a couple of industry professionals. Uh, you got Ernest Langdon. Uh, well, he's been saying this for years, but you got Spencer, Spencer Spencer Keepers, who's been on the podcast fairly recently, and he's kind of uh, he, Spencer's doing some amazing work as an instructor uh, and with some of his development in some of these carrying strategies. Um, even uh, like John Korea, uh, he's talked about this same issue as well. Okay, so the the idea that um, that first shot having that longer travel, having that little bit stiffer trigger uh, is not necessarily a bad thing in a defensive context. And then once you fired a shot, well, you know, after that, it's, it's, it's all, it's, it's free range. It's free game. You know I mean? Like, <laughs> like a shot's been fired. You might have to take more and having that super light, short single action trigger that follows can be beneficial for sure. As far as shooting fast and shooting accurately. Now, what a lot of these guys talk about trigger modifications, by the way, and I would be okay with some of these modifications just because of the type of trigger that they're done on. Um, and that is referring to these DASA guns like a Beretta 92 or a uh, uh, PX4 Storm, right? That are DASA guns, uh, both from Beretta and Langdon, Ernest Langdon with Langdon Tactical does a lot of 
I mean, that's basically his business is taking guns like that and making those double, those double action parts of those triggers, especially those DASA guns, making that as smooth and a little bit lighter, you know, as well, but making it as smooth as possible. And that's the key. If you if you pick up any uh, traditional DASA gun, that double action trigger sucks. It's just long and it's stiff and it stacks and it's heavy. And the challenge for newer shooters, and by the way, I advise newer shooters a lot of times against uh, these type of you know heavy DA you know or DASA guns because they're going to struggle a lot of times making that first shot count. And if you're throwing that first shot, that doesn't do you a lot of good, you know. So. Ernest Langdon, he he is basically building a whole little boutique industry around uh, modifying those Beretta double action triggers so that they are a lot lighter, but not just lighter, but smoother and the same throughout that trigger stroke. And I've I've tried them out and they are slick. Where normally I think of a DSA gun and I'm like, ugh, gross, you know. But you try one of those Langdon tactical triggers, and it's it's long, but it's smooth. So it's like six pounds, six and a half pounds maybe, and it doesn't feel that different from pulling a trigger on some of the striker-fired guns I'm familiar with, other than it's a little bit longer and a little bit more resistance throughout that stroke. But that resistance is consistent, and that's really key. So I would say if you're looking at carrying a, a DASA gun, where I'm at right now with it is I would definitely encourage you to look at some of the things and work that companies like Langdon Tactical are doing or even gray guns for SIGs. Those guys specialize more in the SIG market. They're doing a lot of the same thing. They're just making those double action parts of the triggers a lot smoother and that helps. So definitely it's something worth looking at. Yep. Good stuff. Yep. All right. Can I pick the next one? Yeah. Fire away. Night sights. Okay. Night sights. So, what do you want to so know? Vocabulary first. Like, what makes sights technically night sights? That they glow. <laughs> Pretty much, you're either going to get uh, sights that glow on their own with tritium in them, or you're going to get one that kind of charges up by the light. You know, the uh, light around it and charges up and lasts for a little bit of time. So, um, yeah, th- those are basically your two options for night sights. Mm-hmm. So tritium, that stuff's fancy. It sounds expensive. Yeah, uh, they are, right? I mean, a site a good site of tritium night sites is typically 120 to 150 dollars, right? Occasionally you'll find some that are around a hundred or a little bit less, but I expect to pay 120 or so for a good pair or set of night sites, tritium ones. Uh the photoluminescent or whatever ones, you know. To me, those serve no purpose. I mm-hmm. I don't care for those at all because, you know, the idea there is that they glow in the dark, right? So you hit them with a light source and they're going to glow. And they'll glow pretty good for a couple of minutes, but then they basically stop glowing, you know? So, like, it's no different than not having, uh, you know, just than just having white dots. Because you're going to, you're not, it's not like you're going to pull it out and hit it with a light and then you're able to use your gun. Um, now there are some flashlight techniques, you know, like a, like a, a cheek index, um, or, uh, or on the chest or even FBI technique, you might ca- get some of that light that'll hit those foam and photoluminescent, uh, sites and lighten those up. But that's, it's just silly. All right. Here's the other thing. I also think night sights are overrated, but I want to hear Jacob's take on night sights before I give my, my two cents on that. Yeah, I, I think for me, uh, when we do talk about things we do to guns to make them awesomer, 
uh, I think nice sights is one of the more viable, practical uh, upgrades on a gun. Um, I think that, you know, just legitimately speaking, it's something that you could you can add to a gun that does actually make it easier to shoot in the dark. I, I do think that's a thing. Um, now I, I'll add that you know I I don't I haven't upgraded all my guns. Like I have several carry guns that I use with on a regular basis that I've not put night sights on. But um, you know the more I carry like the 365, which comes with night sights, uh, and and the more I use guns that do have them, the more I start to think, yeah, maybe. Maybe this wouldn't be a bad upgrade. So I, I am inclined to believe the night sights are easier to see in the dark. I think that's a thing. Um, now that said, we you know we could get into the weeds here. There's a comment on on Facebook here about um, actual lights, you know, lighting up the target area uh, and lasers, you know, to to identify or to at least um, you know, help with my aim, right? To 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 have great clarity on where what I'm pointing the gun at. Uh, but but I think those are a little bit outside the scope of night sights. And we have a, uh, two episodes dedicated to talking about lights and lasers. We do. But for me, night sights are about, you know, when I'm trying to make a very precise shot, I need to be able to see my sights. And in the dark, night sights are easier to see. And that's, that's where I'm at. I, I, I think that's pretty straightforward. Yeah, and I think I think the other the other component of that is if you're uh, using fiber optic sights. Some people say, "Well, I like fiber optic sights." Well, fiber optic sights are awesome in the sunlight, but you know, if you get into a low light situation, and nobody's talking about shooting in sheer blackness, right? Because if you can't identify your target, you're not shooting anyways. But talking about low light situations, the fiber optic sights don't perform as well as a night sight. So you lose, you know, partial, partial, you know, of, uh, of your ability to shoot with fiber optics with night sights, you can get night sights that work in low light and in the sunlight, they're colored in such a way that they still are, you know, prominent and you can pick them up. So I think like you, like you said, night sights, I mean, it, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't hurt to put night sights on your gun, um, whether or not you're going to be shooting in low light or, you know, those types of situations you know, who knows, but, um, certainly can't hurt. Yeah. All right. So I agree with that assessment. Okay. Night, like it, uh, I think night sights are one of the more practical upgrades that a person could do their, to their gun. There's a lot of things people do to guns modification wise or accessory wise that don't make sense. I think as it relates to, um, a defensive, you know, a DGU for instance. Um, but night sights definitely don't generally ever penalize you. Uh, or create other issues. It's definitely a, a worthwhile add-on. But here's why I said that I think they're overrated. Uh, I think they're overrated because <clears throat> do you ever shoot somebody in complete dark? Hopefully not. Yeah, you shouldn't, right? Because you got to be able to identify your your target. So if you're shooting, like where night sights are great is for sure in the dark, but you shouldn't be shooting somebody in like total darkness, right? Now, that doesn't mean you have to have total darkness to see night sights, but it just it just means that I need some sort of light source. Either I'm out on a street and I have a street lamp that, you know, I can see my threat and I can tell like what's going on with the situation, but I can see him. That's a situation where you might not have enough ambient light to really pick up the sights very well. And night sights, actually, I think their 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 best use case is in low light conditions, not no light conditions, but lower light, like kind of twilight ish or a little bit beyond that, where maybe you don't have the chance to get out of light, or you don't quite need a light because of the situation. 
All right, and you'll be able to see those sites a little bit better in those contexts. But most of the time, I'm planning on in in a low light situation of having a flashlight or a weapon mounted light handy. And here's the thing: after going through a, a, a several low light shooting courses, what I've learned about night sights is I rarely use them because I'm lighting up my target and I am seeing the sights contra- via contrast. I'm seeing the outline of the sights silhouetted onto the target because of the light source that's lighting up that target. Okay. What I think is best for beginners as it relates to sights is having a high contrast front sight from whatever, whatever it is that's on the rear of your gun. Having a high contrast front sight, I think is vastly more valuable for most people and most shooters in most contexts. Now, one of the reasons I really like those sights on the P365 is you have a really high contrast green, like it's a kind of almost like obnoxious green front sight, but it's very contrasty. Like you can see it very well. And the rear sight is not like two big bright dots. It's kind of blacked out in a way. You see two little dots, but it's because of the tritium vials that you see. And I like that because it's high contrast. You see that you pick up that front sight very quickly and very intuitively. And then you have the night sight feature to fall back onto as well. So those are great sights. I also like the uh, F8 night sights from XS XS sights. There's a very bright contrasty orange front circle on on the front sight and a blacked out rear. And they also have tritium vials. So you, you basically are covered for both situations, but I find for most shooters, they're vastly more better off because of having that high contrast front sight. There's my take. Agreed. Yep. Good stuff, man. And like all other things, when we talk about accessories, n- newbies tend to run the risk of spending a lot of money on a gun that they six months down the road are not going to carry anymore because they're going to buy something else. So that's another you know, warning to throw out. Yeah. Okay, next up. Um, let's talk about real quick on eye dominance. I think a lot, you know, I think I think most shooters are probably familiar with this concept, but there's definitely going to be some that are not. Right? So what is eye dominance? Yeah, so so I'm going to make Matthew talk because Matthew just wrote a great article with some really nice uh, images and visualizations on our website about eye dominance. Well, cool. Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, eye dominance is no different than having a dominant hand or a dominant foot. Um, most people have a dominant side eye. And um, it's not always exactly the same as your dominant hand side, but quite often it is. Um, and all that is, is the, the images that is, are coming from that eye get to your brain quicker and more efficiently. So your brain favors images coming from that eye. That's all it is. Um, and so what ends up happening is if you've never established what your dominant eye is, you're actually, because we're using binocular vision, we're using two eyes. Your, your brain is taking in two visions, uh, two different uh, images. Your, your brain has to, to put those together. And one is actually more in line or in line with what your sight, your, your uh, gun sights and the target. And the other one is kind of what I say is like a ghost image just coming from your non-dominant eye. And so if you're using your, that ghost image to align your sights, you're going to constantly, or you're going to constantly be off. Um, and you won't understand why, because the sights will look like they're aligned, but they're not. And so if you bring up your gun, chances are you're doing this 
inherently you're you're bringing the gun up and favoring it kind of with over the eye that you're you know if you're right eye dominant bringing it up in line with your right eye um instead of exactly dead center um and so there's different ways you can you can identify um which which eye is your dominant eye but in that article you know i kind of just put a little graphic so to help you kind of figure out which one is your dominant eye because it is important especially um if you're shooting rifles um, but even with handguns, you know, if, if you don't understand why you're shooting off and you're, you're, you're dead sure that your sights are aligned and it's not something mechanical, then it could be something as simple as, you know, I'm cross-eyed dominant or I, I'm just using my, the, the wrong eye to, 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 uh, look over my sights. Yeah. And part of this inherently has to do with the premise that you're keeping both eyes open when you shoot. Right, because if, if I if I'm closing an eye, then the eye that's open is going to line up with the sights. Exactly. That's just the way it's going to work. Like it's pretty easy. I only got one eye. I'm monocular vision right now. <laughs> but if I have both eyes open, which is generally considered by most professionals to be the preferred way to, to to shoot, then now it matters. It matters which eye is my dominant eye because that's the eye that needs to be aligned up with the sights. Otherwise, I'm I'm going to be off, and it, it can be a considerable off. I mean, you know, it, it, it's it's pretty big deal. Uh, here's a real easy thing to do if you actually have a gun in your hand. I, I'm holding my cert pistol. Is I, I pick a target, I line, I just put the gun out, I line up the sights of the way I, I they look lined up to me, and then toggle eyes, close one eye, then close the other, and see what happens to your sights. And your dominant eye clearly is the one that will say, "Oh yeah, the sights are still aligned." Then when you switch and you open the other eye and close close your dominant eye, the sights will be off. It'll be like, "Whoa." And that gives you a real quick vision for how far off you could be shooting if, if you're not taking this into account. Um, Riley, I'd like to he- hear your thoughts about how eye dominance plays into stance. Because this is something I see that some people, ch- uh, especially a lot of rifle shooters, they're hunters, and they come to defensive handguns. And so they, they feel very comfortable in like a weaver-type stance. And if they have op- opposite, what do you call it, uh, Matthew, cross-eye cross dominance? dominance? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Th- then how does, that, how does that, you know, talk a little bit about that, Riley. Well, it, this is key because, all right, so to your point, you even mentioned, Jacob, a weaver stance, right? Um, I, I don't even really think in terms of stance so much anymore, by the way. Uh, I think in terms of, like, how you grip the gun and what that looks like. Um, but but if we're talking about a traditional weaver, which, you know, the dominant hand is a little bit more extended, typically close to or about straight, and the support hand is sort of bent, right? Um, it is not as easy, I think, to transition between eyes. It's not that much harder, but I think if you use a full two, two-hand extension uh, grip on the gun, you know, the key with, uh, I'm going to see if I can demonstrate to the camera for those viewing, you know, if I am, I'm right, I'm right eye dominant, right? So I'm using my right eye now. I'm aligned with my, my right eye and that's, that's not a big deal. If I'm cross eye dominant, it's really easy to compensate for that in handgun shooting as compared to rifle shooting with a rifle. Like I have to completely switch shoulders and everything, right? With a handgun, all I got to do is move my head over like so, Right. And the key here is that I'm not changing the positioning of the grip or the arms or the hands so much as I am. All I got to do is turn the head a little bit and it lines up my, my well, I'm not left eye dominant, but let's, let's say if I did it, now lines up my dominant eye with the sights. So I'm gripping the gun the same way. I'm shooting the same way. I'm not changing anything. I'm just 
turning the head over slightly and it aligns with that eye. Um, I, I don't know if that's what you're looking for, Jacob. That's that's how I teach someone is just simply you know, don't alter the stance. Don't alter what a, anything else that it, it is that you're doing. Just turn the head slightly and it's going to bring everything into alignment and it should work with natural point of aim and all that stuff just the way it does with a, a normal right eye, right hand dominant shooter. Um, we're just turning the head slightly. Right. And I have also found shooters who they just perform better by shooting with their non-dominant hand so that they can play to their dominant eye. Uh, so I'll run into that every once in a while. And you got to sure. be at least somewhat ambidextrous to pull that off. Or you uh, got to work really hard at it. And yeah, I know some people that have done that. Like John Korea yeah. actually is a really great example. He is normally right hand dominant, but left eye dominant. And he has learned after he tried cross eye dominant shooting for sometime he then has now switched over to he's had to learn how to shoot and make his left hand his his new dominant hand because he's found that just works better for him mm-hmm. it's cool yeah. great great it, example it also by the way if you do that it comes with the great benefit that anytime you shoot with your non-dominant hand you know your your old dominant hand like you could you should be able to shoot equally well with with, you know, with both hands and that's that's a huge advantage actually that a lot of people don't have um, one quick thing I think that this topic brings up, and I think this is also a great thing to just mention. I don't know how much time we got to spend on it, and we do got to move on to other things, and that is the concept of shooting with two eyes open. I know that you mentioned that, uh, and I would just say that as it relates to this conversation, this beginner's guide, well, yeah, you should shoot with two eyes open when you're shooting a defensive handgun. So if you're not doing that, I would encourage you to start doing that. And there's a lot of reasons why. Um, besides just having more field of view and more th- information that you can take in visually by having both eyes open. Um, but you know, we could go into the weeds on that one, but just, just shoot with two eyes open. Uh, it, it works better that way for most shooters, especially in defensive context. So next up, um, I don't know. Uh, let's talk about, uh, safeties. Super fun. So let, I'll, I'll kick it off by defining passive versus active safeties. Yep. So uh, we use the word active safety to refer to a safety on a gun that you have to consciously choose to activate or deactivate. Um, I don't have one handy here, but like my 1911 has a, has an active safety. So my 1911, also my MMP, my 2.0 uh, is, is one of the MMPs that has an active safety. So on that gun, I can choose to engage a safety uh, that obviously prevents the gun from being fired. If I want to fire that gun, I must actively choose to deactivate it. Now it can become muscle memory. So I'm not saying that it's something that has to be conscious uh, you know, in, in thought, but it is something that mechanically has to be turned on and off. It has to be put into gear or taken out of gear, uh, however you want to think of it. A passive safety, on the other hand, is something that in, it, by naturally firing the gun, by gripping and firing the gun, I'm automatically deactivating the safety. So I'm holding my XDM here, my spring, my Springfield, and it has a grip safety. My 1911 also has a grip safety. And so a grip safety is a great example of a passive safety. One that I can see, it's clearly there, but in the, in, the, in the course of just gripping the gun properly, I automatically disengage the safety. Uh, trigger safeties are another great example 
of passive safeties, uh, both here on my XDM and obviously on all my Glocks. I have a trigger safety, that little tiny button, right? But by just in the natural course of, of pressing the trigger, I'm going to deactivate that safety. It's going to come off. Uh, so those are passive safeties. There are also passive safeties that aren't as obvious as a grip safety or a trigger safety. We have some inside the gun. We have things like the drop uh, drop safety and the firing pin safety and other ones that I should know because I'm an armorer that I just don't even don't even <laughs> can't recall. <laughs> okay, yeah, um, good stuff. I think you you nailed a lot of the different types of safeties. Uh, well, I suppose well. we have to talk about revolvers at some point too. Yeah, uh, revolvers don't typically have uh, safeties on them uh, in the traditional sense, as far as like what people think of as, as safeties. Uh, a lot of modern revolvers now have have a uh, what do they call that? A, a sear or not sear? Uh, uh, Trans- yeah, tr- uh, transfer bar. Transfer. Yeah, thank so you. That- I think that's the term. I, I'm not a big revolver guy. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, the idea there is that the trigger has to be pressed to the rear and basically held throughout that stroke uh, in order for the hammer to actually make contact with the firing pin. Um, and that's basically, I mean, that's probably like the number one thing with revolvers nowadays. Uh, basically, if the hammer, the idea there, if the hammer was already cocked and the gun was dropped or something and somehow allowed that hammer to fly forward if the trigger was not still held in the rearward position that transfer bar would drop out of the way which means its job is to transfer the energy of that hammer through to the sear or to the firing pin and that transfer bar would no longer be there and that's the idea there but on uh, on a lot of our more common semi-automatics that people are carrying and shooting these days um, basically a lot of guns have passive safeties almost every every actually pretty much every modern semi-automatic has a passive passive of safety of some sort uh, a lot of times internally almost everything has a firing pin or striker safety something that blocks that firing pin or, or striker or the channel preventing it to move through and impact the primer unless certain things happen in, in the right order as it relates to pressing the trigger of that gun uh, in an intentional um, you know manner um, but where I would be a little bit more focused right now is should you or should you not have a manual or active safety, one that you typically have to deactivate with your thumb uh, before you shoot the gun? What are your guys' thoughts on that? My take is, you know, obviously I could cop out and say, oh, it's up to personal preference, right? But here, here's my take. It is, it is going to be your personal preference, but base your personal preference off of some knowledge. And first, don't don't think that just because you have a manual external safety on your gun, that somehow that gun is a safer gun. All right. Um, case in point, I wouldn't take a gun, load it up and just in chamber around, put it on safe and point it at you and say, you know, Oh, don't worry. It's on safe. Right. It, it, it's ludicrous because that safety is it, a mechanical device that can fail. Right. So um, don't, put all your eggs in the manual external safety basket. If you want one, that's great. If you have one on your firearm, that's great, but make sure you train with it. If you don't train with your safety in a defensive, you know, on your defensive gun. And what I mean is when you're at the range, your safety is always off, right? And in between shots, your safety is always off. You're not decocking. If you have a double action, single action, and, and you're just kind of basically running that gun as it, though it doesn't have a manual external safety, then you're not training yourself, like Jacob said, to inherently be able to take that off. And now it's something consciously you have to do. On the other hand, if you don't want to have a safety, a manual external safety on your gun, fine. That's great. Um, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, 
just make sure that you know, obviously you are safe because um, there is less margin for error. So I think when we're talking about something being safer or not, there's just less margin for error with a safe, with a gun that doesn't have a manual external safety, but it's one less thing that you have to consciously commit to doing. Um, and so, you know, either way you run it, just make sure you know why you're doing that and it should make sense to you. I, I, in some ways, I relate this to the whole, you know, carry it around in the chamber question. Good old yep, episode totally. 18. Totally. First one with Matthew Marister, right? <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is when people ask me, should I have an active safety or should I have a round in the chamber? My answer to both those questions is generally the same. It's something to the effect of, I think it's a good goal to eventually get to the point where you're comfortable enough not carrying with an active safety or carrying with a round in the chamber. Um, but out of the gate, do I have the expectation that everyone should go carrying around guns without safeties? No, I think if, if that's what makes you comfortable, gets you to the point where you can you know, can carry around a gun daily on your body, then I say, great, but make sure you're practicing to disengage it in the course of your draw stroke and, and, and target presentation. Uh, but I do think it's a good long-term goal to get to the point where you're comfortable enough that you don't need an active manual safety. I am... I mean, I don't disagree with anything you guys have said, uh, but uh, I'll just make my stance really clear. And it is just that I am not a big advocate or fan of active safeties on a defensive handgun. Um, it's one more thing that you got to worry about. It's one more thing. And by the way, I've seen shooters that have accidentally engaged safeties while they're in the middle of firing their gun. I've done so it. So it's, yeah, it's one more thing that can go wrong while you're trying to deal with that threat. Now, I mean, yes, that those are all shooter errors and there are things that can be or should be corrected and then practice should eliminate, but it's just one more variable in a situation that's already complex and complicated and scary enough. My theory on a defensive gun is I, yeah, I want it, my, like besides reliability, we'll get to that probably next, uh, besides reliability, my other number one, like my number two requirement on a defensive handgun is a gun that I could just grab and use right now. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to do anything special. I don't have to, you know, know some some sort of combination <laughs> to get that thing to actually operate. I just want to grab it and pull the trigger. That's it. Now, you need to have confidence in the way you carry that gun. You need to have confidence in your holster. You need to have confidence in the gun You know itself. Uh, these guns nowadays are designed in such a way they are not going to go... They're not going to fire unless something or somebody pulls the trigger, right? So you need to have confidence in that fact. Um, but I want a gun that I can just grab and use, pull the trigger. That's it. Um, you want to use a safety? Whatever. You do you. I, you know, just doing a lot of uh, mental exercising, you know, just thinking through all the different things that we need to be concerned with in a deadly force encounter and... I just don't feel like, you know, my the logical side of, of my brain says I don't need one more thing to worry about. I just want to worry about grab, press trigger when it's aimed at my intended target, right? That's it. We so, do have a comment here on Facebook that I think is worth addressing in this in this topic. Uh, and it's from Randy and he says that my wife carries in purse active safety seems safer. I hear that from people and the premise that they might be thinking is, well, if it's in my purse, then maybe there's other things that are going to sneak into the trigger guard and, and press the trigger, you know, the pen that's in there or the lip gloss or, or something. And so that safety is going to prevent those kinds of accidental discharges. Well, I, I suppose the, 
that that there's some validity to that thinking if that's the situation. But the inherent problem there is that you shouldn't be carrying the gun in, in anything where something has access to the trigger guard. Um, if that that purse is designed properly, where it's a concealed carry purse and has a holster built into it, then the trigger guard is properly protected from anything else in the purse. If it's not that case, if it's just some, any old purse and I'm throwing the gun in there then I would hope that you're using some sort of like pocket style holster that's somehow, you know, properly covering the trigger guard. So all holsters, including those in purses or other off-body carry systems are, are inherently designed to cover the trigger, the trigger guard and protect it from anything externally engaging the trigger. Mm -hmm. And if, if you, if any method of which a gun is being carried that can't, that doesn't meet that criteria, then you're not carrying the gun safely anyway. And a manual safety, while you know helpful perhaps in, in, in getting you to a point where you feel safe, shouldn't be necessary if, if you're carrying it in a proper holster system. Yep. Yeah. But by the way, manual safeties can get knocked off, you know, even while in that purse or whatever as well. So if you're counting on that safety to be able to just throw this gun in a bag or in a purse or whatever, then that's that's the wrong move. It does not replace common sense and in a holster it does not do that at all i don't I, i'm not saying that's what randy is saying she does here but that's that was definitely the thought that came to my mind um active safety yes it seems safer it, no doubt is to some degree right um as far as carrying that gun um but use common sense use your brain uh, make sure you're not doing anything stupid and then if like i said if you've got an active safety make sure and matthew touched on this pretty well make sure you're actually practicing to deactivate that safety. All right. So I mentioned we'd probably touch on reliability next. Um, and this is just something that because people are either not concerned about reliability at all, or they're overly concerned about reliability. And that's kind of where, where why I brought this to the table today to discuss. So what about handgun reliability, guys? I'll start with one end of that that uh, that extreme. In fact, we, I just got an email from our managing editor at concealedcarry.com. He's assigned me to write an article whose main topic would be, is it ever okay to carry an unreliable handgun? And my answer, I, so I was just thinking about this. And my answer to the question is, yeah, it's better than not carrying one at all. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm generally uh, of the belief that the only thing worse than not having the gun with you is carrying a gun in a manner that's unsafe. So assuming that we're not talking about unsafe guns, we're just talking about guns that are arguably less reliable uh, than, than what we might consider a standard, you know, whatever that standard is we can talk about. I, I would be inclined to say that uh, any gun is better than, than no gun. The, my first handguns were all high points. I owned three high points and I was super proud <laughs> of, of owning those high if, points. If I, I remember correctly, through. you actually tried to purchase one when you were 18 years old. I, I did. It didn't. It didn't. Because you, know, you didn't. You didn't know. Did their job got, and didn't sell it to by me. the way, just so I have your back on this, people. Jacob did not grow up in a gun owning, gun shooting household. So you have to understand nope. that he turns eighteen years old. He's like, sweet, I could have a gun, and that's what he went to do was to buy a high point. And it, he he learned very quickly. Well, you can buy a rifle, but not a handgun. <laughs> it was it was awkward to say the least. I wasn't allowed toy guns in my house growing up. So anyway, that would I guess that would be my first thought is uh, you know are those would I carry a high point today? No, but if your budget for a handgun is one hundred and fifty dollars, um, you can afford a high point, and I would say that would be better than not having a gun. I would hope eventually that you would save up some money and get something that I would deem more reliable than your high point. But I'm I'm thrilled that you would take $150 that you have and go buy a high point and carry it versus not having a gun. 
If it comes down to that, by the way, this is just for the record. If you have $150 for a high point, throw like another 20 bucks into the pot, like wait another week, save another $20 and buy a Ruger LCP, which can be had on Palmetto State Armory for like $169. Valid, valid. So I, capacity I'm is just, not as good. I, 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 it's not worse by by very far, and you can get no, mag extensions not. for those LCPs that'll put them in line with a with a high point. Um, <laughs> I, I would agree, I totally agree with you, Jacob. Is like uh, uh, unreliable guns better than nothing. But I I think about it is like this: if I had a car that I was driving in, and I knew that like at any point this car is going to break down, right, or it could because it's just so unreliable, I would be I wouldn't want to drive it cross country, right? Because I know I'm going to get stranded in the middle of the desert and that's going to be probably, uh, that's probably when it's going to break down, right? So for me, I'm thinking like, okay, if you, if if you get that gun and you go out and train with it and you see every, you know, 15th round it's jamming or it doesn't, you know, then yeah, it's better to have that than nothing, but you might be giving yourself a little bit of false sense of security saying like, well, I can defend myself with this firearm and you actually pull it out and then, you know, you can't defend yourself. So I, I totally agree. And it's definitely better than nothing, but I, I'm going to kind of like bridge over to Riley's side and say like, you, if it's, if it comes down to it, wait like a couple more weeks, save up a little bit more money. Don't go to McDonald's or don't buy your Starbucks for, you know, a month and then buy a decent gun. That's going to, that's that you can have a little bit more reliability in. So here's what's stupid about this conversation. Okay. <laughs> what's stupid. <laughs> I is like that how you said it right after I said, something. no, no. <laughs> what's, what's stupid is that we're making excuses to carry an unreliable gun. Like, like, Okay, why why that's dumb is that that is one variable that you can affect, that you can change today, right? Like, if you knowingly are carrying a, an unreliable gun or a gun with problems or whatever, and you're like, well, it's all I've got or it's all I can afford, like, I, I kind of get that at the same time. Like, that's, like, you can't become a world-class shooter today or tomorrow or next week, but you can change that variable as far as it relates to that piece of crap gun that you're carrying around. You can affect that today. Okay? So, that's what I think is kind of dumb about this. All right? Um... Now, is it better than having no gun at all? I suppose, I guess. But why? When you can ch- change that that variable, I, I just I don't I don't understand that logic. Um, okay, so that's the one end of the of the perspective. Okay, other end of the perspective. I know people that if any gun has any issue whatsoever, that they immediately like, oh my gosh, I can't carry that for self defense because in the back of their mind. And I, let me give you the example. Um, you have a gun and it's generally a, a, a decent quality gun has a generally decent reputation. So we're not talking about high points here. We're talking about, you know, let's say it's a, I don't know, a shield, an MMP shield. And they're generally pretty good guns, pretty reliable. Um, so you're carrying one and you shoot say 1500 rounds and you have one malfunction, a, a double feed, let's just say. All right. And immediately you go, Oh my goodness. This gun is not reliable. It had one malfunction in 1,500 rounds. I should not be carrying this. Now, I kind of get that. Like, we definitely want 100% reliability if possible. But the reality is, for 
virtually all guns, like 99% of guns, like nothing in my opinion is 100% reliable. All right. (laughs) What do you want to say, dude? I I, I was going to say that, you know, we we're, we're talking so much about the gun itself. We're focusing on the actual firearm. And I think that there's a lot of other variables that we can do Mm. to increase reliability. The first one that comes to my mind is the magazine itself. We're making sure you have a, a nice, you know, in, in good quality condition magazine that's not been beat up, shoved in the ground, full of dirt. The spring has, you know, has been, you know, you've been using, you've put six thousand rounds through that mag and never, never done anything to it. So I think magazine's a huge issue. I think ammunition is one too. I think in this category, we have to say some ammunition is more reliable than other ammunition. Uh, so that's another thing to well, to and think it, about. it can just totally, you know vary from sure I mean, ammunition type to gun type like some guns just don't like certain ammunition yeah. my, my kimber is very finicky it's like mm-hmm. it's like a high quality hotel right the more you pay the less likely you are to get wi-fi and breakfast but <laughs> it it I, I guess what i'm trying to say is we when in this conversation about reliability yeah there's definitely some guns that are deemed less reliable or consistently are less reliable but I think that we have to remember that the magazine and the ammunition and my maintenance of that firearm uh, in terms of cleaning it, lubricating it, and upkeeping the parts are also factors. And so we can't, you know, it's, it's, it's a holistic approach to carrying a reliable gun, uh, not just, well, I've got to get a different gun or this gun, you know, by itself is, is, is bad or not good. Yeah. Now, I get that. But let's, let's, let's just assume you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing as it relates to the gun, the maintenance, the cleaning, and so forth, which you should be. And so let's just assume that that's the case and that you're using quality ammunition with it. But you get that one malfunction out of, I don't know, 1,500 rounds or 2,000 rounds, and you go, well, by golly, they told me that Glocks or Smith & Wessons or whatever, like you should be able to go 40,000 rounds and not have any malfunctions. That's a load of crap, okay, if you think that. So I just wanted to point that out uh, that, um, you know, no gun is in my, you know, in my experience, because I've seen them all. I've every one of these popular brands that you are familiar with that you're thinking of right now, these big names, Glock, Smith and Wesson, uh, Springfield, Sig Sauer, HK. I have seen every single brand malfunction. Now, sometimes it could be shooter error. Sometimes it could be ammunition. Sometimes it could be uh, um, magazine or whatever, okay? This is true. But I have seen, you know, the fact is that malfunctions is a part of life, all right? So what I want to point out is that let's just suppose, now my my standard test is that I I shoot a gun typically, like if it's a, a kind of a reputable brand and, and design like a Glock or a SIG, you know, 320 or something along those lines, an MMP, I will shoot 500 rounds through it. And if I get 500 trouble free rounds, I generally, I, I will say, okay, I'm going to put this in my waistband. Now I cut all gun manufacturers some slack in the first 50 to hundred rounds because every gun can sometimes have some, you know, hiccup and, you know, it, it just came off a production line, right? It might have a little rough edge here or something there that just got missed and through firing it, you're going to smooth things out. Right. But once I get that 500 rounds all straight through reliably, I'm cool sticking that in my waistband. We recently had this P365 that came out and people were getting a handful of malfunctions. Now in early on and with some guns, they are definitely lemons, 
But I have seen some people that are like, well, I was up to 1,100 rounds, and all of a sudden I got one malfunction. It kind of happened to Matthew. Matthew, you had a trouble-free gun, and then we had a double feed at like 1,200 rounds in or something, right? Yeah, exactly. Have, have you had yep. anything else since? Not not anything since. And, I, and I've and i actually shot almost a, a ton of aluminum casing through that thing where other and my gun won't run aluminum or steel at all and and mine has so it's yeah. I, I i'm right in line with you like yes you have to take the reports of reliability from others and you, you have to take that into consideration but realize that you also have to do your own work on the gun, like your own trial testing with the gun, your mm-hmm. specific gun. Cause I don't care who says that this gun is trouble free. You might have that lemon Glock that came off the assembly line. So if you haven't put it through its paces and you're like, Oh, Glock's so, and so, you know, uh, reliable, which they are, um, that I'll never have a problem. I don't have to put this through its paces. Well, that's, you shouldn't be having that mindset either. So I think you just look at your gun, take it all into consideration, start shooting it. If you're running through and and it's, it's functioning after a thousand, 1500 rounds, I think you're probably going to be pretty, pretty well uh, good to go. Yep. Let me put this last thought would be that um, guns are machines and all machines have a breaking point. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. If you, if you run something hard enough and long enough, it will fail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just that's why machines need to rest and they need to have maintenance done. Yep. Uh, people probably get in their mind that it sh- that it shouldn't, you know, for however many tens of thousands of rounds because they see videos like Iraq veteran 8888 that you know shoots full auto Glock like 20,000 rounds and you know and it, it continues to run or whatever. Like, yeah, guess what? Sometimes that happens. But anyway, let me put this in perspective. If you had one malfunction every 500 rounds, that is 0.002% probability, you know, that your next round is going to be a dud, right? Or it's going to fail or it's, you know, whatever, right? Well, even that's an exaggeration. Yeah, I I agree. Because, because the gun is more likely to fail the more rounds that go through it. Well, I mean, we're talking one, in one round, in one roll. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's generally true. Dirtier. That's generally true. But my, in my experience is that in, when a gun is relatively new, like we're talking like, 10,000 or even maybe almost 20,000 rounds or less, right? Really 10,000 rounds or less for sure is a really good metric. Like that gun is still new enough that it's expected that it, I mean, my experience just shooting a lot of rounds through a lot of different guns, Jacob would show that generally you don't see a lot of degradation in terms of age and, and wear and tear in 10,000 rounds or less. Okay. Most people don't ever shoot that many rounds. Okay. So anyway, but point is 0.02 percent, uh, actually, yeah, chance that that gun is going to have an issue. Okay, um, it, that's relatively small. All right, so that's the first point I want to make. I want to point out now: many guns will be reliable for a thousand or fifteen hundred rounds or two thousand rounds at a time. So my point is: is where it comes to reliability, don't go so far in thinking that like it, 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 you know that it your gun ha- suddenly has an issue because you have one failure to extract or eject in like t- t- 2000 rounds that's just unreasonable. Riley your math is wrong. So 1 divided by 500 is 0.002 but that is not 0.002%. Oh, I said percent. Sorry. It's 0.2%. So just yeah. just to keep you in check. No 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 that's that's it's still ridiculously yes, low. Thank I you. just know we're going to get No I, I I knew I was saying something wrong there. <clears throat> so um here's the other thing. Most shooters don't shoot their guns enough 
with the gun or the, or the ammo they carry to know that the gun's even reliable in the first place. All right. Agreed. So I gave you the kind of the extreme of some people take it so far, and as soon as they have one problem, they go, oh my gosh, I got to sell this gun. We're talking about problems or when you have a malfunction every magazine or once every hunt, you know, every box of ammo. That's an issue. Now go the other way, and I know shooters that buy a gun, load it up with a magazine or two, fire it at the range once, and go, yeah, I'm good, and start carrying it. And they might shoot a box of ammo once a month or once every couple of months. I hope, if you're listening to this, that you will actually get out to the range, shoot, shoot with your carry ammo, and discover for yourself if you, if your gun and that combination of ammo and gun and everything else is, in fact, reliable. And I would expect... I, I, I My personal opinion is I don't like to see more than one failure per 500 rounds because I think that's a pretty good, happy number. It's still low enough probability that I think you're generally safe. You don't have too much to worry about. And it's not so extreme, you know, like these other cases I was talking about. So speaking of, uh, that was reliability. Speaking of carry ammo. So, and Matthew says he's got to take off. That's no problem, buddy. Uh, appreciate you being uh, uh, with us t- today. You got He's got to go pick up uh, his kid or something, you know, do something yeah. important, you know. From That's school. the way it goes sometimes. <laughs> and Thanks, Jacob and I will wrap this up here. Um, <clears throat> this is what we get for trying to talk about nine different things, right? Carry <laughs> <laughs> um, ammo. Carry ammo. And this one was Matthew's idea. So... <laughs> <laughs> Well, so it's the thing he wanted to talk about, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that this is a confusing thing for a beginner. This is the ultimate beginner's guide. And this is a mess because you go to buy some hollow points, and you know you're supposed to have hollow points, right? I'm supposed to have, you know, my instructor, everybody says I should have hollow points in my gun when I carry it for self-defense. And you go shopping, it's like, uh, whoa, there are tons of different options and, uh, and <laughs> opinions. I mean, it's funny for me, even like with among just Hornady, you look at just Hornady as a brand and how many like relatively high profile, you know, hollow points um, do they, do they sell? There's tons of them. There's like four or five that are like big, high profile, big deal, um, you know, st- types of, of hollow points that just Hornady sells. So I do think this is a very important topic because you can get lost really quick and it's challenging to have some sense for what would make one better than another. Yep. Yeah, it really is. There's literally, I mean, how many different guns are there? Hundreds of different guns that people own and buy. And there's equally as many, if not more, different types of ammunition. Um, Now, what I would say first off and foremost is that for self-defense ammunition, you should be carrying high quality, new and that means newly purchased, like you didn't inherit it from your uncle that's like, hey, I had some rounds left over. Here's here's some hollow points, buddy. Stick that in your carry piece. I mean, like you bought, you went to the store, you bought new in box, and also that it's relatively new in terms of technology, okay? Meaning that you're not still carrying those hydroshocks from 30 years ago, okay? Guess what? Ammunition technology has moved on, okay? Things are better than they were 20 and 30 years ago. Things are better now performance-wise, especially from a 9mm bullet, than they were during the Miami shootout in, in the early 80s, okay? So carry modern, newly purchased, high-quality, hollow-point, or self-defense-intended ammunition, right? But then there's still, like, even if you limit down to that, you know, like you might end up with probably 30 big time players in that, you know, that fit that category. Right. So how do you narrow it down even further? 
Yeah, well, I tell you what a lot of our customers probably do. A lot of our listeners, they just buy the cheapest one. That's probably true. I mean, and, yeah. and that's that's a valid thing, you know, and Economic guess what? does matter. I mean, yeah. it shouldn't be the only thing that, I mean, obviously, if that's all you know, then you're like, crap, I, I've heard of this brand. I, I, you know, it seems to be the cheapest. I guess that's what I'll buy. That's not a horrible, at least I, I do think that economic, economy, economics, there we go. Economics should not be disregarded as unimportant. Mm-hmm. Because you know this is a cost that that we're we're involved in, so I'll throw that out there. I think cost is is a factor. Yep, I, agreed. And and it's 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 a valid one. I mean, like I definitely. I mean, if I have two bullets that I believe perform equally well uh, in testing, you know, in FBI standards, all this stuff, but this one's cheaper. Well, of course, I'm going to choose the cheaper one. Uh, so here's the thing. This is this is the thing. There's 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 what people. There's what's reality as far as bullet performance, and there's what people believe certain bullets are capable of performing. Okay, there's a lot of hype and myth out there about certain bullets. Um, and we could really dig down into the weeds, but I'm going to point you in a direction that I think is helpful and it's been helpful for me. First of all, um, I frequently refer to LuckyGunner.com. All right, these guys have done a fantastic job. Now, not only do they sell a lot of ammunition and they, their hope is obviously that, you know, you're going to buy ammo from them because you're using their, their, their data, but they basically take a lot of these new ammunition uh, uh, types that come along that they eventually probably put in their store and they test them. Now they're not a licensed, you know, uh, 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 testing or scientific uh, research facility or anything like that. But they, it's if you, but yeah. yeah, but if you read through their, their logic, their reason, their, their procedures, and everything, they're doing a pretty solid job. They're, they're working pretty hard to make this as reliable and accurate as possible. But you go to, just go to luckygunner.com and there's somewhere on their main page is a link to go to their ballistic tests. All right. And they have everything for 380, nine millimeter, 40, 45. Uh, let's see. I think they have 38s in here. I think, let's see, 45, maybe they don't have 38s, 40, nine and three. Okay. They do not have any like revolver rounds. These are three eighties, nines, forties and 45s, but that's the bulk of you out there. Okay. <clears throat> and they have testing for a lot of different types. And you can look at the results and basically what you'll see is what they're testing primarily is hollow point rounds going through multiple layers of denim. This is, you know, it's like five layers, I think it is. Uh, This is an FBI protocol and into a uh, calibrated block of ballistic gelatin. And they're measuring consistency and depth of of that penetration. And we wanna see between 12 and 18 inches. Now that's an arbitrary standard, but it's been put together by the FBI because of a lot of different testing and experience and real world uh, uh, results as well. Okay. To suggest that if you can go through these layers of fabric and consistently penetrate between 12 and 18 inches in this ballistic gelatin, then that's, that's, that's considered to be a good quality hollow point round intended for self-defense use. Their chart is very easy to read at Lucky Gunner. It's fantastic. You can look at all these different types. And what I look at is consistency and penetration. And some of these, you'll see that they have three of, of the rounds or four of the rounds that will you know, be within that 12 to 18 inch parameter. And they'll have one or two that are just total outliers. They go way too deep or way too shallow. I tend to stay away from those. I, I there's Because there's some options out here that are very consistent. And they... 
fit within that appropriate uh, uh, you know parameter of 12 to 18 inch depth. And so there's definitely some some winners that you can almost never go wrong with, um, and that is for nine millimeter. Okay, because keep in mind, just because Federal HST performs very well in nine millimeter doesn't necessarily mean it performs well. And I'm I I I'm not I don't know if this is the case. I haven't really looked at it that closely. Doesn't necessarily mean it performs well in forty five or forty. Okay, a great example is that uh, Hornady XTP bullets generally don't do so well compared to the competition in nine millimeter and some of these bigger calibers, but they perform very well as a 380. Okay, so it can change depending on caliber. So go to luckygunner.com, use their, their data there. I think it's a great place to get started. It makes it easy for you to see what actually has been tested and performs reasonably well and consistently and choose something that fits within those appropriate testing parameters. That's a good place to get started. And we can include that link in the show notes, which would be helpful. Totally I will. I don't think I have much more to add on that one. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 it. Um, generally speaking, just from experience, the federal HSTs, um, the uh, depending on the caliber, Hornady critical duty or critical defense, it can vary depending on caliber. Okay, I've noticed that, um, and also uh, depending on caliber once again and weight of bullet. Weight of bullet can make a huge difference in this regard. Some of the Sig Sauer V Crown rounds do well. And sometimes they don't, depending on bullet weight and caliber. Um, another popular one that seems to perform consistently well is the uh, gold dot, spear gold dot. All right, so gold dot, HSTs, um, things of that nature, like uh, Ranger T bullets uh, generally do pretty well. PDX-1 is hit and miss, depending on caliber. Okay, I'm just giving you kind of some some feel for about what to expect. All right. I guess I'll just add that the margin of error here is not significant. It's not like we're talking like, ooh, you know, well, that, that that round, you know, it it may just not come out of the gun at all. You know, it might just <laughs> kind of fall on the ground in front of you. Um, no, no, that's not what we're saying, right? right? Like the, the difference between this, like, yeah, this one performs, uh, you know, and this one's like really good. Like the margin between that is is not like some it's unreliable and it's never going to stop the bad guy kind of margin. It, it, it's just that slightly better consistency of performance. So yep. don't don't get too in the weeds on this one, uh, but a little research, you know, might make you feel more confident about what you're carrying. Yep. Finally, to that topic, uh, I think it's way more of a concern when a bullet under penetrates than over penetrates. Under penetration almost guarantee that you struggle to stop that threat. Over penetration, while we generally are very concerned about hitting somebody beyond the target. Um, Chances are that that's possible, um, but chances are that bullet has lost enough energy that if it did strike someone else, that it's not going to be lethal. Now, we don't want to hurt anybody. I'm just saying that I'm much more threat focused as far as like if I don't live through this encounter, then it doesn't, you know, nothing else really matters <laughs> so much. Um, as long as I'm not being, you know, egregiously uh, uh, irresponsible. But, uh, you know, so under penetration, there's quite a few you'll see as you go through this chart that are just really bad. Um, so here's where I think we're at. We have covered trigger vocabulary, different tr trigger types, uh, eye dominance, night sights, safeties, carry ammo, and handgun reliability. Um, and I, I might have mentioned in the beginning that we were going to talk about a couple other things, but we are into this already pretty deep and uh, fairly lengthy. And so a couple other things I think we'll save for 
the Ultimate Concealed Carry Beginner's Guide Part 3. And I don't know when that'll come exactly, but probably sooner than 114 episodes from now. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what are those things we're saving, Riley? Give us the tease. Well, let's see. We're going to talk about holster retention types, different types of, of holster retention. Uh, what to do with your EDC gun. Um when you bring, when you come home, um, or when you're not carrying it. Um, I think that's kind of an interesting worthwhile topic to, uh, cover. And, uh, I, for some reason I had it in my mind that we had three left to talk about and I'm not sure what the third one is. I don't. Well, then let me just put it out here out there for listeners. If you have other things you'd like us to cover in the next ultimate beginner's guide, uh, part three, please let us know. And we will kind of start to collect those. And when we feel like we have a, a lot of good ones, um, then we'll, we'll jump into that. And this has been part one, episode 138 has been a very popular episode as a lot of downloads. People uh, seem to go back, find that one and listen to it. And we've had a lot of good positive feedback and it is nice to kind of just hash through several topics uh, you know, like this in one episode. So we really enjoy it. And if you guys have other topics you'd like to be covered in the ultimate beginner's guide, part three, shoot us an email podcast at concealedcarry.com. Yeah, cool. Actually, so we had nine topics that we began with and we actually talked about seven of them. So that was the two that are left. So we'll save those for another day, another time for sure. Um, and uh, appreciate you uh, giving that little plug for some of our older episodes as well. And once again, if you want to go back and listen to part one of Ultimate Concealed Carry Beginner's Guide, that is episode 138 for your quick reference. Uh, of course, as always, uh, we have show notes. Uh, they're not super detailed, but you know we have some helpful things in there. We have links to things we talk about. Uh, if it's news stories or whatever, um, that, that's where you're going to find them in the show notes. And for today's episode, you can find today's episode show notes at concealedcarry.com forward slash episode 252. All right. So once again, today's episode was made possible by Guardian Nation. We appreciate all of you, our Guardian Nation members, and for what you do to make the things we do here possible and to provide such things like tonight's Guardian Nation live event with John Lovell from Warrior Poet Society. And we look forward to seeing many of you there tonight. And I might mention that we are giving away some seriously good crap. <laughs> I, I don't know how much you want. I mean, Jacob? Go ahead, man. Oh, well, tonight, by the way, we are giving away two rifle kits. What this means is everything you need to assemble an AR-15 minus a lower receiver. We're giving away two of these things. Now, they're not super high quality. These are your, your classic Palmetto State Armory uh, rifle kit that you'd buy there. They're valued at like 370 bucks. All right? But still, pretty dang awesome. We're giving away two of those rifle kits, two complete kits, minus lower receivers tonight at the Guardian Nation Live broadcast. So you need to be present to win. Uh, check out tonight's live broadcast at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. And uh, we, at some point during that broadcast, we will announce which of the attendees win our, one of those uh, rifle kits. So that's pretty exciting. Do we have anything else we're giving away? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, I'm holding that one in my pocket. That's, that's fine. <laughs> but, but I just gave enough to get people probably excited, I think, to try to be there tonight. So, um, And if you're not a Guardian Nation member, then that means you can't attend the GN Live tonight and you can't be eligible to win one of those. And by the way, odds to win something based on past attendance is very, very good. Yeah, relatively. <laughs> okay. yeah. So you might want to consider going and joining Guardian Nation right now. All right, guardiannation.com. And I'll make sure this episode's published too uh, here in the next uh, two hours. Okay, so uh, you should have some time to join and get signed up 
and get your link to go to the live broadcast tonight and have a chance to win something really good. And also SSP eyewear, concealedcarry.com forward slash SSP. Check that out for quality, but very nicely priced uh, eye protective wear. So with that, Jacob, time to bid you adieu. Austin La Vista, Riley, thanks again. A reminder to everyone to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.